I was driving home from an appointment, and I was just thinking about some of those things that were going on in our lives as a family and really even weighed down by some things that are going on in your life as uh, your pastor and the part of the team that loves you and shepherds you and just just thinking about what some of you are bearing. And as I was driving along, listening to the radio, this song that I love came on. And it just, it just came on at the right moment. And, uh, and I could hardly see as I was driving. You ever have that happen where the Lord just ministers to your heart in a very personal way? And, and the song was the song, you know, it's Weary Traveler. How many of you have ever heard that song? It starts this way, Weary Traveler, beat down from the storms that you have weathered. It feels like the road just might go on forever. Carry on. And then the chorus is, Weary traveler, restless soul, you were never meant to walk this road alone. It'll all be worth it, so just hold on. Weary traveler, you won't be weary long. So I got home, and I have one of those personalities that if I find something I like, I I like it a lot. If I find a particular popsicle I like, I buy like whole freezer folds of it. And uh, so, so I, this song has been on repeat in my office all week long. It's like the only song I think I've listened to since Thursday. So it's, it's rolling around in my head. And as I've been working through James for us this morning, it really does, I think, carry out or at least for me, it articulates something that I don't know that I had the ability to articulate as clearly, that our souls do grow weary and our spirits do grow restless when we find ourselves in that hard place and in that dark space where God has called us for His glory and for the sake of the gospel to live out a living faith that is wholehearted, single-focused, and fully trusting. We've been spending our time in a book where James has been strengthening our understanding of that, and he has come now to this place in chapter 5 where he is going to lay out the context in which that living faith is to be carried out by us. Oh, he's told us uh, at the beginning of the letter that we were part of the kingdom of God. We saw that in chapter 1 verse 1, and that as we have been gathered together under Messiah, we are still dispersed in the little kingdoms of the world. So we kind of know from James that we're to carry out our mission in the kingdoms of the world and all the little places where he appoints us. In those hard spaces and in those dark places, we are to carry the light of the gospel through the beauty of a living faith that endures. But it's not really until we get to chapter 5, the very end of chapter 5, that it's like James peels back everything and shows us where he's been going. And all the connections that he laid out in chapter 1, he's going to come back and reconnect at the end of chapter 5. And it's not just that we are to do this mission to display our living faith, this wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting faith in the little kingdoms of the world, in those hard spaces and dark places where he's appointed, there is something that is going to actually be how God chooses to carry that out in our lives and through our lives. And it's 
the term suffering. It's the term suffering. It shows up here in verse 13. Is any among you suffering? And James is asking the kind of question that every one of his readers would have known. It, it's, it's a question that when they heard, they would have almost laughed as they responded to it. It's like, well, who among us isn't suffering? The answer is, of course, James, everybody is suffering. And so he's going to introduce now the context in which everything he has been talking about for four and a half chapters is now going to come into play. And it is in the context of the sufferings that God calls and appoints for every gospel risk taker who is going to live out their wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting faith. This is not the first time James or the New Testament writers talk about suffering. In fact, if you read the New Testament carefully, you, you find verses like 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 14 that sort of identify for you that suffering is the defining experience of the Christian life. It's not just something that happens. It's not just an occasional thing. It is the defining experience. James says it this way, rejoice in so much as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Peter says, listen, suffering isn't just something that happens to you. It's the defining experience of the Christian life. Timothy is told by the Apostle Paul that it is the common experience. It's not just the defining experience. It's the common lot of every obedient Christian. When Paul said to him, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. James says it's the essential means for the development of our living faith. Count it all joy, he said to us in chapter 1, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be complete, perfect, lacking nothing. Peter says it's the undeniable manifestation of the authenticity and the preciousness of your faith. And in chapter 1, he said, the tested genuineness of your faith, though it be, uh, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. So suffering isn't just an experience that we can expect every once in a while in our life. It's the defining common undeniable experience of every obedient Christian, and it is the compelling means by which God advances his gospel. So James is not introducing something new to us. He's, he's introducing something that we've all experienced, and he's been telling us what to do. In chapter 1, he said, listen, when you find yourself under the pressure of suffering, you are to ask God for wisdom. You need wisdom from above to discern what God is doing. In chapter 5, verse 8, he said, listen, you need to ask God to use his promise to you 
to strengthen your heart, to put iron in your soul. He exhorted his readers in chapter 5, verse 10, to respond graciously to those who were bringing that pressure and that persecution, just like the prophets did. And then he reminded us of Job as a way to exhort us when those sufferings come and they tend to crush us and we tend to just be worn out by them and wonder if we can go another day. He says, listen, as you suffer, you need the wisdom of God to help you discern what God is doing. Your your heart needs to be strengthened by the promise of God, and then you need to respond graciously, but you need to endure faithfully. Now, there's one final response that James is going to give us, and that's really the response that we're going to look at this morning, and it is this. You are to pray fervently. When you and I encounter unexplained suffering like Job, unjust persecution like the prophets, or unrelieved sickness like we're about to find out here in this text, James says, here's what you must do. You must render to God fervent, faith-filled praying. You must render to God fervent, faith-filled praying. And so let's start where James starts, and let's just walk through this text together this morning and let James counsel us. Let's let James put iron in our own souls for our season of suffering. And some of you are going through that right now. Some of you are right in the middle of it. Some of you are heading into it, and some of you are coming out of it. But all of us are where James is talking to this morning. We're all weary travelers, and we need the comfort and the strength of God. So how does James do this? Well, look at verse 12, and he starts off with an exhortation. There's something that James wants to exhort us to do, and this is uh, in, that little, in that little word that begins verse 12, but above all. This isn't just sort of James' way of ending the books. I've been talking to you for five chapters. I know we're getting tired, and so I'm wrapping it up. And so let me just kind of signal to you that it's time to start uh, packing up your stuff because we're about to land the plane here. That's not what James is doing. The word above all here is actually James highlighting to you that everything he has been talking about up to this point has been going somewhere. This is the focus of the book. This is the climax of the book. This is where James has been sort of shepherding you as he's introduced you to the five friends, as he's introduced you to Abraham and to Rahab, and later in chapter 5 to the prophets and to Job. He has been trying to get you somewhere. And now he's going to come right out and say it to you above all. And what he's going to talk about here is this, that people whose living faith is tested by suffering, people who are facing unjust persecution, people who have unexplained suffering and unrelieved illness, how are these people to respond? How are they going to respond graciously like the prophets? How are they going to endure faithfully like Job? How is this possible? And James says, well, it's not going to happen by you making false promises to the persecutors that come about against you, and it's certainly not going to happen if you make foolish vows to God in an effort to try to get him to relieve the thing that's crushing you. 
mean, think about it in James' day. Here are people who are being persecuted because they believe in Jesus. They are living in their towns and in their cities, and they are being dragged before magistrates and being held accountable for their faith. Is it true that you believe? Maybe they work for an employer, and he is, he is appalled that one of his employees would not worship and not honor the gods of the city. And maybe this Christian had to come in for a meeting and was asked directly, and so one of the temptations would be to make false promises to those who persecute you in an effort to relieve the persecution. Or maybe this was something that was coming not just externally from your neighbor or from your boss or from the city around you. Maybe there was an internal pressure that was going on that you would give anything to have relieved and you have talked to God and talked to God and in the midst of the crushing pressure of all of that, you began to make promises and vows to God. If you'll just get me out of this. If you'll just relieve this. God, if, you'll just, if you will just do X, then I will do Y and Z. And James says, when you come to this pressure of suffering that God has appointed for you for the gospel's sake, don't try to eliminate that suffering by making false promises to those who are persecuting you or putting that pressure on you, and don't make false vows to God. So what am I supposed to do? And the answer is pray. Pray. In other words, in James chapter 1, James said to us, don't speak rashly. Be quick to hear. Be what? Slow to speak. And here's the application of that here in 5.12. Don't use your tongue rashly. Don't, Don't be quick to use your mouth to talk to the wrong people or to the right person in the wrong way. But instead, when you talk to God, come with a faith-filled heart. Come with an undivided heart that we read about in chapter 1, verse 5, and let your request be made known to God. Talk to God in the middle of your suffering. And so there is an exhortation. And James immediately follows that in verse 13 and following with an admonition. If any of you are suffering, let him pray. It's clear if you just read down these verses that James has prayer on his mind. It occurs in almost every, there's a reference to prayer in almost every one of the verses. So he has it on his mind and he wants to get it in our minds and in our hearts. And he's not talking about the one-off, occasional or even panic praying that we do from time to time. He's talking about the ongoing habit that we cultivate of a running, honest, transparent, submissive conversation with God. It's what you do in your car. It's what you do when you get up in the morning. It's what you do when you are in the doctor's office and you got a diagnosis you didn't want to get. It's what you do at the grocery store. It's what you do throughout your day. James is saying, when you live your life in the context of suffering, then pray. Cultivate this ongoing, running, open, transparent, honest, authentic, and submissive 
conversation with God. And then he starts telling us what that actually looks like. Is any among you suffering? And so we are to have this conversation with God when we are overwhelmed with trouble. The word for suffering here in verse 13 is a very strong word. It's the same word that James used back up in 5.10 to talk about what was going on in the life of the prophets. It speaks to the horrific realities and the agonizing difficulties that come often and repeatedly into the life of God's choicest servants in the very middle of their service for Him. Let me give you some examples, and we've, we've seen this. The brutal treatment that came upon Jeremiah in the middle of his ministry simply for telling God's people God's truth. Or it could be the loss, the devastating loss that Ezekiel faced in the middle of his prophetic ministry when God permitted his wife to die. Or think of the repeated marital infidelity that was part of God's appointed ministry for Hosea so that you would understand the beauty of God's grace. Think about the horrific murder and martyrdom of Isaiah at the end of a long and faithful service to Christ. These are the kinds of things that James is talking about. And by the way, these are the things that happen to you. These are the very kinds of things that happen to God's servants, not just the prophets, but to those who are around ministry and are in ministry and and are striving to live obediently for the Lord. God says to them, as you live out this beautiful faith and, and this amazing truth of the gospel that brought you out of those kingdoms of darkness into the kingdom of light, and as you are now in those little kingdoms bringing others, the means, the compelling means by which others will come is as they see your faith suffer. It's a stunning thing. And so as you and I face those realities, James has a word for us. James says, when those things come upon you, when your marriage didn't go the way you thought it would go, when you lived and cared about your health and you lived carefully and and yet here you are in your early 40s and you're in a doctor's office and, and all of a sudden everything you thought about your life is no longer on the table. You took your kids to Awana. You took your kids to church. You brought them to every children's program. You read them the Bible. You did all the stuff you were supposed to do. And you never, ever anticipated that you would have a son or daughter walk away from the faith. You never anticipated that. Is any among you suffering? Some of you are. In fact, I would say this. Most of you are. I mean, if we could sit down and just start talking around this congregation and we could do so appropriately with faith-filled hearts, it might shock you to know what's going on in the lives of other people in this room this morning. And James says, when that comes into your life, what will you do? And, and his, his, his exhortation to you, his admonition to you is pray. And then he says something very interesting in the next little line. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. The word praise there is literally the word for psalms. We have a whole book 
of these sorts of praises in our Bible. And so James says, now look, in the middle of your suffering, if you're cheerful, and sometimes when you read certain people writing about James, they, they sort of point out that this is somebody who's enjoying really good fortune in their life. Everything's going well. And I hope that when things are going well and God gives you a season like that in your life, that you will sing praise to the Lord. But I don't know that that's really what James had in mind when he's talking here in this text. It strikes me that the cheerfulness is in the middle of the suffering. And that's exactly what you see really in the rest of the New Testament. The word cheerful here is not talking about emotional happiness when life is going good and well. it's, It's talking about the strengthening of heart that happens in the midst of a crisis. It occurs one other time in the New Testament, and I'll, I'll give you the story so you see the context. It occurs in Acts chapter 27, verses 20 through 25, two times. This is the story of the Apostle Paul. After three missionary journeys, a season uh, of suffering, uh, an extended, prolonged season of suffering in every case on, on those journeys, and now he is on his way to Rome to make his case to the emperor, and he's on a ship. And you get into Acts chapter 20, and the ship has been battered by a magnificent, terrifying storm for many days. And after the sailors, who had not seen the sun or the stars for more than three days, had done everything they knew to do, they abandoned all hope of being saved alive. That's actually how the text says it. You ever been there where you've almost abandoned all hope? The storm has been so strong. Here are these sailors, and they have abandoned all hope. They've done everything they could. The darkness doesn't lift. The storm doesn't abate. And the Apostle Paul stood up among them, and he said, I have a word. I have a word. He says this, take heart. Take heart. You can see it in verse 22 and again in verse 25. And, and, and he says to them, listen, I have a word from God about you. And the word is this. The word is that even if the ship be lost, and it will, none of your lives will be lost. Take heart. And he was able to do that because God had given to him a promise. That is exactly what James is saying here when he says to you, in the midst of your suffering, when everything is falling apart, when, when your marriage looks like it is done, when your life looks like it is over, when your family looks like there's no repair, take heart. Strengthen your heart. The way he says it in chapter 5, verse 8 is this, establish your heart. Put iron in your soul. Why? Because God has given you a word about his coming and about his presence. And these kinds of people, when God answers their prayer and they encourage themselves with God's word, that's the idea of psalms, praises here. God does amazing things. In Acts 16, you find two of these gospel risk takers doing this very thing. The Holy Spirit led Paul and Silas to preach for the very first time in the city of Philippi. And they get there. You know the story. In Acts 16, they had an incredible uh, way in which God enabled their preaching, and yet at the same time, there was horrific opposition. And by the end of their time there, they had been arrested. 
They had been dragged before an angry mob. The scripture says their clothing had been torn off their bodies by the enraged mob. They were brutally beaten with many blows. Their bodies were bruised and, 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 and wounded and broken. And then they were thrown into the city jail where they were confined in the inner chambers of that jail. And at the nighttime, their feet were put into stocks. But at midnight, those two battered, beaten, gospel risk takers were singing. They opened their mouth and they began to sing and the prisoners heard them and God heard them and the jailer heard them. And by the end of that story, this jailer and his whole family had come to embrace the God to whom Paul and Silas were singing. Paul says, listen, when your heart has been strengthened by the word in the middle of your suffering, sing praise to God and then consecrate your heart through prayer to God when your heart is weak and your body is sick. Notice what he says, is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The word for sick here in this text, in this verse 14 of the passage, is is a term that can mean spiritual weakness as well as physical weakness. When your heart is overwhelmed and you can't seem to find the way to sing in the suffering like like Paul did, and, and, and you can't seem to get there with the Word of God strengthening you when you're so weak and you're so weary and your flesh is so strong that you feel like you are going to be overcome, Paul says, get others involved. Get your church involved. Call for the elders of the body where God has put you. And let them come and stand over you and let them come and stand with you and let them pray strong, faith-filled prayers for you. This is really a stunning thing. The weakness in mind here may be emotional. It may be internal. This weakness may be spiritual. Maybe there's a, something that has come, the temptation has come so strong that, that this believer has no longer been able to resist The weakness may be physical. Maybe there is a devastating, life-altering, life-ending disease that has come into the life of this person, and they are not strong. They are weak. You've been there. I've been there. And James says when you pray and and you go to the Word and, and your heart is not strengthened, call the elders and let them come. Call to your church and let them come and pray a prayer of faith over you. Can I make one just side note here? This is why you need the church. This is why you need the church. I am so thankful that so many of you come faithfully every week. I mean, it doesn't matter what's going on in your world. It, it doesn't matter what the weather's doing. You're here and you're faithful in your participation in this body. Many of you have taken that step where you've said, you know, I actually need to be a part of a New Testament church and this is the one that God is connecting me to, this imperfect body of people that are led by imperfect elders and shepherds. This body that is imperfect seems to be the place for an imperfect person like me and God is connecting me here. 
We have moments where uh, in our life as a church, we celebrate that. We're about to do that on the 2nd of October, and I can't wait for that. But you need the church, and you need the church for times like this when your heart is being overwhelmed and God is at work in your life, but the suffering is so strong. The illness will not lift. The darkness will not go away. It may be that it's time to reach out to the elders of your church or to the elders of this body, if you're part of this body, and say, pastors, I need help. I need help. One of the most important things you can do in your Christian life, one of the marks of spiritual maturity in our lives is when we know when to reach out for help. Sometimes it's like, I don't want to reach out to anybody. I don't want anybody to know this. A spiritually mature person recognizing the season of suffering is so great. It's so strong. The sin is so appealing. The temptation is so overwhelming. I need help. And that's why God gave you a body. That's why you're here, because the days when you don't need help, there might be somebody else, and you might be the help they need. And so as we think about what is happening here, James says, call for the elders. Apparently, this person is so weak and is, in this case, physically laid low that they can't even get out of bed, and the elders come and pray over them strong prayers, faith-filled prayers. And then notice what happens Next, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Here are the elders. They come. Here is this brother who has called for them, or somebody has called the elders on his behalf, and he has been laid low. He is weak. He is sick. He is suffering. And that suffering is coming from one of two directions. It is either coming because of a gospel ministry that God intends to do for his glory, or it is coming because God wants to call that person's attention to some sin that he has been committing. Now, please understand here, not all sin, I'm sorry, not all sickness is the result of sin. If you have sickness in your life or there's a a condition that you're struggling with and you've been dealing with this for a long time, one of Satan's strategies is to come and beat you on the head with your illness and say, this is because of a hidden sin. And we could see that in the life of Job, which is why I think James actually put Job right above this passage. Because the one thing we do know about Job is that in the midst of all of this sickness and in the midst of all of his suffering, he was not suffering because of sin. And it's more likely than not that you aren't either. But there are times in the New Testament where the writers of the New Testament make clear that when there is open, known, repeated high-handed sinning against God and against the congregation that sometimes God does bring severe judgment through illness. When the Corinthians were sinning against each other in their body and they were sinning by taking the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, Paul said, this is why some of you are sick. 
And this is why some of you who have refused to repent and you keep abusing the Lord's table and you keep sinning against Christ and you keep sinning against your brother in open, high-handed ways, this is why some of you are asleep. And that's a very kind way of saying this is why some of you have been called home to heaven by God. In Revelation chapter 2, the head of the church looks at the church of Thyatira And he says, you have been engaged as a church openly. This is known by all of you. You have been engaged in sin. You have been engaged in adulterous uh, relationships, immorality, and you've been engaging in idolatry. And everybody knows it. And that's why I cast some of you into a bed of sickness. And so there are times in the life of a congregation where there has been open, unrepentant, flagrant sin where God says, okay, I'm going to call this to your attention through sickness. Certainly, these elders would have known if that were the case because James has been talking to them in this book about sinning. In chapter 4, there have been people that have been ripping the body apart by the use of their tongue, their critical use of their tongue. They have been committing spiritual adultery. There's a whole host of sins that... James is laid out in chapter 4, and now the elders come, and they would know whether this individual before them has been engaged in those kinds of body-altering sins. They would know, in other words, if this individual had been a doer of the Word, or as we read here in James 5, he has been doing sins. The idea there is repeatedly knowingly, openly, flagrantly doing the kinds of things that James talked about in chapter 4. And so when the elders come over him, their prayer is that God would grant to him repentance. And the whole text points out that when this man repents, when he confesses that what the elders know is true, and he repents, God gives him a promise. God will heal him. God will raise him up. Now that brings me to the final thing this morning that we want to look at, and that is this. There is a perspective that we need to think about here. Here is a season of suffering. You're in it, I'm in it. It's painful, it's prolonged, it's crushing me, my heart is being overwhelmed, my spirit is restless. I don't know if I can carry on. And James comes along and he says, now, you need to strengthen your heart with the promise that God has made you in his word, and you need to pray. What am I supposed to pray for? When James says pray in verse 13, what am I supposed to pray for? Well, I know I'm going to pray that God will deal with the oppressors. Or I'm going to pray that God will eliminate the suffering. I I don't want the suffering. I want healing. I want God to heal me. I want want God to deal with this so that I get relief from all of this suffering. And James says, but that's actually not what I told you to pray for. I told you to pray for something back in chapter 1, verse 5. When you are under trial, when your faith is under pressure, if you lack wisdom, which is what you lack, Because I have a question I'm usually asking. Why? 
God, why did you allow this? Why is this going on? And James says, listen, if you lack wisdom about that, go to God and ask him for wisdom. He's already told you that he will give you that wisdom liberally. He will open up heaven for you, and he will give you that wisdom from above. But you have to come a certain way. You have to come with an undivided heart. We're going to see what that means next week when we get into that text about Elijah. What does it look like to have an undivided heart when our heart is being torn apart by suffering? And what you and I are to pray for is we are to pray for wisdom, discernment. So when those elders come in that season of suffering and you cannot figure out what God is doing and this illness will not go away and it isn't because of sin... The elders are going to do something. They are going to anoint you with oil. You see that in the text? Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be strengthened. That's the word for healed. So what is this anointing with oil bit? And there are immense amounts of pages that have been written about this. Let me give you four views very quickly, and, and one of them is mine. So, so some people think this is magisterial. In other words, I would say sacerdotal. This is, this is why the Roman Catholics will sometimes take this passage and talk about bringing oil and anointing someone who's dying, and they call this the sacrament of the last rites, right? And that's clearly not what's going on here because the expectation is not that this person is going to die, but that God is going to what? Raise them up. So that's one of the views. Uh, There's another view that I call the magical view. And, and that's probably a cheeky way of talking about it, but it's simply the idea that there's something magical about the oil, and if we can just get the oil in the hand of the right person and put it in the right place, then there is a guaranteed outcome. I call that the magical approach. There's probably a, a less offensive way of talking about that. And then the third view is medicinal. In other words, this is the idea that the elders are going to come and they're going to do two things. They are going to administrate medical attention if necessary through the oil. And we have an example of this in the Good Samaritan. Remember the Good Samaritan? And he comes and he anoints the body of this beaten man with oil. And so there's a medicinal idea here. And so here are the elders and they're going to come and because they didn't have hospitals and the kind of medical things that we have in our day, they would use the medical things that were available to them and they would combine that with prayer. And there's certainly uh, uh, some help in that, right? I, I would never want you to walk away from here saying that people of faith do not take advantage of what God has given through common grace in the medicine and the medical treatments that are available to us. But I don't know that that's what's going on here. And so I have a fourth idea, and this is mine, and you may, uh, and I'm obliged to tell you that it's mine, and it's an opinion. So uh, one good thing about opinions is that you have your own, and so you go to the Scriptures and see whether or not your opinion um, merits the kind of attention uh, that I think mine does. In the Old Testament, there were occasions where people were anointed with oil 
because they were being set apart. They were being consecrated to a special ministry. The priests, Aaron, for example, and his sons were anointed because God had a special ministry for them among his people. There's actually a text in Isaiah 61 where Messiah is anointed because he has a unique ministry. His ministry is to take your ashes and give you beauty in their place. He is to take your suffering and give you joy. He is to take the garments of sorrow and give you the garments of of praise. And in order for this to happen, he is anointed. He is consecrated. He is set apart to a unique ministry. Here's, Here's my consideration. Could it be that these elders have come and have recognized that God is doing something unusual and that he wants to do some great gospel ministry through this person and it involves the ongoing nature of that illness. And the anointing there is not so much for relief, but it is for the setting aside, the consecration of that person to that ministry. Could it be that the life Ending disease you have is actually intended by God to be the compelling means by which other people are going to come to life. And here you are and you're suffering and you have no idea how all of this works and it's everything you can do just to keep your own weary soul from giving up. And God says, carry on. You don't have to walk this road alone. And maybe those elders who represent your church are actually there because as your leaders, they are saying to you, we think that God is going to do something great through this. Can I give you a hypothetical illustration? Maybe the Lord might come to you one day. Some of you are young enough that you have no idea what this looks like. Some of us have been through this, so let me just lay this out. Maybe the Lord would come to you one day and say, you know, I have somebody that I, there's a whole family I want to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I would like to see them saved. And uh, they have a nine-year-old son, and that nine-year-old son has inoperable brain cancer, and there isn't going to be any hope for that son, and he happens to be on the cancer ward up in one of the prison hospitals in Greenville, and, and I'd like to know if you'd be willing to reach that family for Christ. Not a one of us would say no to that. We'd all be like, yeah, that's great. When do you want me to go visit? Here, let me grab my stuff. I'm going to go over to Pastor Ben's office. He's got to have something there on suffering and depression and stuff, and so I'm going I'm to load my backpack, and God says, no, 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 no. Hang on a second. Okay, let me finish. I actually am going I'm to send you as a missionary there because you have a nine-year-old son that's come to Christ. And I'm going to put that nine-year-old son right next to their nine-year-old son. And you're going to come and you're going to be in the same space, in that same hard space, and in that dark place, but you're going to have something different. You are going to have the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ that they desperately need. I'll be with you. I'll I'll never 
abandon you. I'll never forsake you. Or maybe something else. Maybe, maybe you struggle with some emotional condition or something about you that you wish would go away and you've tried everything. You've prayed till you can't pray anymore. You've memorized all the verses you know to memorize. You've got all the little tricks that you try. I'm going to flick my wrist 10 times every time I have this thought and I'm going to quote 10 verses and it doesn't go away. Have you ever thought that maybe God intended for you to use that prolonged suffering because there's a whole world of people out there who struggle with the exact same thing you struggle with and they need the gospel. And maybe what needs to happen is you need to come before the elders of your church and let the elders pray with you and talk with you and discern what God is doing and consecrate you to the ministry, the gospel ministry that God is doing. You say, was God ever do this? There was a servant, Isaiah 61, who was consecrated to a season of suffering. There was another servant in 2 Corinthians named Paul, who came before the Lord and he begged God three times. And maybe you've begged God three times and nine times, 27 times. And God gave those two servants the same answer. My grace is sufficient. And you and I are here today because of those two servants. We're here eternally because of the first servant. We are here theologically understanding what we're talking about because of the second servant, the Apostle Paul. And maybe God has that kind of a ministry for you. Are you willing to do what James said? Are you willing to just come to the Lord and say to the Lord, Lord, in my season of suffering, more than relief and more than deliverance, I want you to strengthen me because I know that one day you will raise me up. And when you raise me up, I want there to be a whole gospel harvest that I can point to because of this season of suffering. Are you willing to do that? That's where James is going. This is what wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting faith actually does. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. Lord, these words that James has brought to our attention this morning, front and center, are not easy words, which is probably why he put them at the end and gave us all of this theological framing to build our hearts so that we could hear them this morning. Lord, I I know that many in our congregation are, are, are being crushed by suffering. Some open, some hidden, but Lord, we pray that in the midst of all of this, you would do what James said. You would strengthen our hearts by the word you gave us about your coming. Because we know that when you come, you will raise us up. Just like you raised Jairus' daughter, just like you raised the paralytic from his bed, you will raise us up. And Lord, when that great getting up morning happens, We want others to be raised up with us who came to life because of the gospel they saw in our season of suffering. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.